you bow with me? Father, as we come this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. And Father, we come as yielded vessels, ready and willing to hear your word. And now, God, we ask that you would conform our lives to the pattern of Christ our Savior. We pray, Father, that you would conform our hearts and our minds by the truth of your word to living out the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would speak into our lives today by your Holy Spirit, God. Have your way in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would give us minds to comprehend and eyes to see and hearts to love the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Humble King. We see this in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we began a short three-week Lenten series titled A Different Kind of King. And in Mark 10, Drew taught us that one becomes great in the kingdom of God through service. Jesus, the servant king, says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This week, we see a humble king. And now Jesus, the humble king, begins acting out the unfolding drama of his last days as he approaches Jerusalem. The scene unfolds in three parts as Jesus enters the holy city of God. And so read with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said and they told them what Jesus has said and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In our modern day concept of a king, the words humble and king are almost an oxymoron. I think the contrast of recent events by two controversial figures is helpful. While we were in Uganda in November of 2015, there was, there was one man who visited Uganda. In fact, all the streets were shut down because this one man had visited Uganda. Do you remember who it was? The Pope. 
The Pope visited Uganda, and people flocked to the streets. They, they came out in fanfare wanting to see the Pope. Pope Francis had come to Uganda. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz about the city. Well, the same could be said when President Obama visited Kenya and Uganda in 2015, just before the Pope. President Obama had gone into the city, and when he did, the streets were also lined with people, with excitement, with much fun, uh, fanfare. But there was a notable difference between how the two traveled. The contrast is, is interesting, and it's simple, and we understand why the contrast is there. But the contrast is there, nevertheless. President Obama's ride in luxury was nicknamed the Beast. It's a souped-up Cadillac limo that was trans transferred over to Uganda, to Kenya, so that he would be able to ride in protection, obviously. A little bit of, a little, a little bit of information about President Obama's vehicle. The, the windows on it were reported to be five to six inches thick. They're bomb-proof. They can withstand armor-piercing bullets. The doors uh, are armor-plated armor and eight inches thick. The doors weigh the same amount as the doors of a Boeing 757 cabin door. Passenger section in it, the area that he rides in is spacious and it's security. Uh, it has security and it has luxury. He can still stay connected with a fold-away desktop or laptop ride. We, we would expect that for the nation's president. I'm not making any bones about that. But we get the picture of President Obama's visit and his traveling around the country in luxury. We contrast that with Pope Francis's visit to Uganda and his ride in a generally small vehicle wherever he goes. Maybe it's a Toyota, some sort of small car, or some Fiat, or a Honda, or some uniquely constructed, as they would call it, Pope-mobile. His choice of, of a humble ride, though, it communicates something, doesn't it? It communicates something that he wants to communicate, that he's a man of peace, that he comes in peace. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters in humble mediocrity. His choice of a cult communicates something. His choice of a cult communicates that he is a king of peace. He is a humble king. Such is the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus intentionally plans his entrance into Jerusalem this way to reveal something about himself. He's revealing his messianic identity. Humility, service, and peace conveys the way of his kingdom. And so Jesus' triumphal entry, it's certainly triumphant. What we celebrate today, it certainly is triumphant, but it's not as the people were expecting. Mark 11.1, 1, in fact, begins the last week of Jesus' life. A week which he told his disciples in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, would be marked with suffering. Look at Mark 10, 32 through 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and he was walking ahead of them. He was speaking with his disciples. He, took the, he takes the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, verse 33. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus isn't entering Jerusalem 
as a triumphant political or military deliverer. Instead, he enters Jerusalem on a lowly, humble colt. He enters as the triumphant Passover lamb. And his triumph over death will secure peace with God for all peoples, for all nations. And when he returns, he won't return as the humble, peaceful king, but as the triumphant, exalted king. When he returns, this time he will bring swift judgment on all nations who have rejected his atoning work that he purchased at his first coming. Peace with God for mankind. So this morning, as we await the triumphant return of Christ at the last day, the challenge for us is let us faithfully proclaim peace with God as ambassadors for Christ. In the first scene, we see a humble king. A humble king and his faithful disciples. In verses 1 through 6, it's noteworthy that the triumphal entry is recorded in all four of the Gospels. The significance of this event is found in that it begins what's known as the Passion Week. A Passion Week is the week that we're going to celebrate this coming week at different churches in our association. In fact, you received a handout or an insert in your worship folder, and you're able, uh, I want to encourage you, if you're able, to make it a point to attend one or many or any of these Passion, Passion Week lunches this week. I want to encourage you to go to, the, uh, go to one of them, go to some of them, and to participate in this Passion Week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Some of you have taken the opportunity to walk through a Lenten Bible study seeking to know solidarity with Christ and His suffering as we approach the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. But even if you haven't engaged in a Lenten Bible study, I want to encourage you to take specific time this week to walk through what's called the Passion Narratives. At the end of each of the Gospels, pick one of the Gospels. Pick Mark, since we're working through Mark. Or pick John, as we'll be working through John in the Passion, uh, Passion Week meetings for all the churches in our association, but pick one of the Gospels and each day walk through the Passion narrative leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Spend time in private devotions through this week looking at the Gospels and the Passion narrative. I think this will help prepare your heart, your mind, my heart, my mind, as we prepare to gather with God's people to worship Him next Sunday. I've come to appreciate this passage in Mark's gospel in a new light during my preparation this week. In fact, I've purposed not to consult the other gospels to fill in the the seeming holes in the narrative. Instead, what I, I want us to consider is I want us to consider Mark's unique perspective this morning and what he's trying to communicate through his gospel account in a different way than Matthew or Luke or John is communicating in their gospel accounts. In verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus' humble, sovereign authority displayed. It says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Now Mark leaves a question in our minds. How did Jesus know of the colt's location? How did he know of its availability? Had he prearranged securing the colt? 
Did he know the owner? Was the owner actually in the crowd and gave him permission to get this colt? We don't know. Ultimately, though, Mark, he doesn't tell us. Instead, I I think Mark is making a simple point. And the point that Mark makes is simply this. Jesus is in control of his destiny as he approaches and enters Jerusalem. He knows the road he's on for the Passover celebration. And he embraces his messianic mission. The cult that the disciples fetch is unique, though. Verse 2 tells us it's a cult that had never been sat on. And this unbroken cult is pressed into the sacred service of Jesus' messianic mission. To any astute Jew, an unridden cult was a sign pointing them to see Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21.3. Only an animal which had not been worked or ridden was, su- was sufficient for being employed in, in divine service. And Jesus is employing this animal in his divine service. As one writer points out, pointing back back to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. When the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, upon which the Lord Almighty sat in order to be among his people, tumors broke out upon young and old, and a plague of mice afflicted them. They were all in panic once they realized that when they took the Ark, they got the Almighty God of heaven and earth with it. The only, resor- the only resort was to send it back to Israel, so they prepared a new cart and took two milk cows on which there had never come a yoke. And they yoked these cows to the cart, First Samuel 6, 7 tells us. And so the Lord Almighty made his triumphal return to his people as the Ark of the Covenant was pulled back to the people of Israel. What I think we need to see here is that instead of commandeering a horse ridden by triumphant warrior kings king jesus chooses a colt in humility knowing the beating the mocking and the scourging that awaited him jesus calls for a sacred humble beast to mark his kingly triumphant entrance into god's holy city this was a statement of peace when he knew that beatings awaited him when he certainly had the power to overcome those who had ill intent toward him Jesus displays his humility as he rides into the city. They were planning to kill him, but he was planning to take their punishment and to offer himself as atonement for their sin. His mission was to make peace with God on their behalf, on our behalf, as only he could. Not only do we see Jesus' authority displayed in verses 1 and 2. I think we see Jesus commissioning his disciples in verse 2. Again, we don't know which disciples he he sends out, and it's really not important. But in verse 2, he gives them specific instructions, doesn't he? In verse 2, he says to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Here's what you need to do. Untie it and bring it. Not only does he commission the disciples, he even equips his disciples. He tells them what to do. And he tells them what to say in verse 3. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Or why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And it will send it here immediately. Fourthly, in verses 4 through 6, we see the disciples 
follow through with all the commands that Jesus has given them. And they follow through with faithful obedience. The two disciples respond to Jesus' instruction and find everything in accordance with what he has told them. Now, this certainly isn't the primary application, I think, of this passage, but it bears our consideration, I think, as a secondary application this morning. You see, these disciples had no idea of the role that they were serving in carrying out Christ's divine mission. But we need to see, brothers and sisters, from their example, faithful obedience to Christ leads to his exaltation as supreme sovereign Lord. When we faithfully obey Christ, we participate in his divine mission, proclaiming the peace of Christ to all nations. His triumph over sin and death is worthy of our obedience and and proclamation to a world in sin. As these faithful disciples engaged in the service of Christ, let us likewise faithfully engage in the service of Christ. Let me ask you a question. How has Jesus commissioned you in his service? What gifts has Christ entrusted to you so that you can serve others for his kingdom? How does the way of humility displayed by King Jesus challenge you to the way of humility? How does his humble nature speak and challenge us in being humble as we respond to the world? In the second scene, we see the royal procession and the crowd's response. Verses 7 through 10. And until this point, the crowd's unaware of what Jesus is planning. When the disciples arrive with the colt, they throw their cloaks on the colt as a saddle, and then Jesus sits on the colt. Look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And the crowd at this point becomes enlivened. You see, Jesus is acting out the messianic drama before their eyes. Immediately, the messianic prophecies of Deuteronomy 4, uh, 49, 10, and 11, and Zechariah 9, 9 would have flashed to the forefront of these pilgrims' minds. They were expectant pilgrims heading for the Passover celebration in the city. Genesis 49, 10, and 11 says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding, listen, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The colt was significant. Zechariah 9, 9 through 11 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall make what? Peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You see, by commandeering the colt and sitting upon it, 
Jesus is claiming to be God's Messiah. You know, never before in the Gospels in Jesus' earthly ministry do we see him sitting or riding on anything except for a boat when he crosses the sea. In fact, it was customary for pilgrims celebrating Passover to walk the journey down the Mount of Olives up the ascent to the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus breaks tradition. He's never ridden anywhere in his earthly ministry. And now he climbs on top of a colt and begins the descent down into the valley and up into the city. King Jesus breaks the tradition and he rides in royal triumphant procession into the city. What we note here as we continue through the narrative is we see the response of the crowds. At first, their response was one of, one of extravagance. As the scene unfolds, look at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Right? Can you imagine the scene? They're laying their cloaks down on the road so that this colt doesn't step on the dirt. And they're cutting leafy branches and they're putting them in front of him so that there's somewhat of a a red carpet as we would think. They're they're giving him this royal procession to enter into the city. And in verses 9 and 10, they begin shouting. They begin shouting loud over and over. They begin shouting this antiphonal psalm of the Hallel Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The Hallel was this group of psalms that the pilgrims would sing as they journeyed their way to the Passover celebration or any feast in Jerusalem. They would, they would sing this, Psalm 113 through 118, as they went down and as they came up and ascended into Jerusalem on their way to the temple. This was a song, these were songs of, of rejoicing and of great expectation. These were songs of, of great hope for the crowd. And as they're singing these songs, they're they're shouting, Hosanna, as we sang this morning. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And the crowd's response was this one of great expectation. They were singing and shouting before the Lord. And just before his triumphal procession, Mark has recorded an important detail for us. Jesus healed this blind man named Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And this also plays an important role in them recognizing and singing and attributing these psalms, Psalm 118, 25 and 26, to Jesus. For listen to the prophecy of Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Verse 7. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you realize what's happened here? In chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, this man who was blind named Bartimaeus was sitting there on the roadside, and as Jesus passed by, he began shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
They said, be quiet. And he shouts all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and he goes to him. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And this blind man says, I want to recover my sight. And Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. And he recovers his sight. You see, Jesus is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. He's the messianic one who was promised. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this messianic prophecy, all these messianic prophecies of old were coming to pass in Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah 11.1, Isaiah 11.1 and verse 10 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, that is the son of David, right? The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious you see blind Bartimaeus called out Jesus son of David have mercy on me and now we hear the people shouting with great expectation Hosanna do you know what Hosanna means it means save us now we pray get the picture Jesus is riding in as the humble king on a colt, and the people are, are proclaiming this Old Testament passage, Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save us now, we pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is allowing them to sing praise, to attribute worth to him. But all the while, the crowd didn't realize the significance of this Passover. They were singing with great expectation. Jesus' kingly triumphant processional is inaugurating not the way of war and political war or or military conquest. Jesus' triumphant processional is inaugurating the way of peace. Peace with God. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But as they declare, blessed is the kingdom of our father David, This is not the kingdom that they expect. They expect a military and political revolution. Who can blame them? This is all they knew to look for. They were so steeped in tradition. The crowd, they were so influenced by their culture. Consider their history. So many wicked kings. They had led them astray as a nation. There were a few righteous kings along the way. But there was one who stood above all. David, the man after God's own heart. And they were waiting for the son of David to come. The people couldn't see beyond what they knew. They couldn't see beyond what history had told them. They couldn't see beyond what tradition had taught them. And and they couldn't see beyond the way that culture had shaped them. They wanted a deliverer to give them freedom from oppression. And in their nationalistic passion... They wanted a deliverer who would shatter their enemies. They wanted a conqueror who would reign political, reign with political power and with military might. But what they really needed was a deliverer. One who would bring true spiritual rest. One who would bring peace with God. One who would make a new covenant between God and His people. One who would forgive their sins and Heal their brokenness. They were crying out, Hosanna in the highest. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He is about to save his people, but not in the way they expect. You know, so many times as we come to God, we, we come in the way that we think we need. We come wanting things specifically that we desire. But I want to challenge us this morning as we approach God to approach him asking, God, what is it that, that you know that I need? God, what is it that you're wanting to do in my life? So many people have different views of God and who God is today. But what we see from God's word is that God has communicated to us who he is. There are many thoughts about who God is, but God has given us a truth revealed about himself and who he is. I want to challenge you as you approach God not to let culture, not to let tradition, not to let any political agenda dictate in your own mind who God is. But to submit your life to God, to submit your mind to understanding who God is according to his word and according to his revelation. And so let me ask us a couple of questions. What are the events of history that shape our view of earthly citizenship versus our heavenly citizenship? Church, how do we balance this? What have our traditions taught us about Christ our King? In what ways does our culture shape our expectations of Christ's return? In what ways does our culture shape the mission of the church, does it? We must consider this as we see Christ, our Savior, approaching Jerusalem to make the way of peace. Are we engaged in Christ's mission of bringing peace to the nations? Have you become apathetic to God's ways, believer? Just existing from day to day? Existing as a Christian but not living out the hope of his calling? Is your passion for Christ misplaced like the crowd's passion was misplaced? They were blind to the goodness of God's merciful and gracious plan in Christ. And in true God-like fashion, God didn't give the people what they wanted. Instead, he gave them, he gave us a grace gift of infinite superiority. A gift more gloriously supreme than any earthly conqueror, dictator, king, or president could ever give. He defeated our greatest enemy, Satan. He conquered our greatest mortal adversary, death. And the way of peace set before him was the road of suffering through the cross. You see, church, the hope for the Jews is the same for us today. The hope is that we would see the Messiah exalted on a cross and be drawn to God the Father through Christ the Son. The hope is that we would learn our suffering is not in vain because Christ's suffering was not in vain. The hope is that through our suffering, we might learn the humility of Christ, that we would know the peace of Christ that passes all understanding because ultimately, ultimately, we trust not in chariots or horses, not in political establishments. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, Christ is the only hope for all nations. His sacrificial death is the umbrella under which all other nations will find peace with God. The triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem is a, it's a necessary reminder to the church 
that earthly kingdoms will not endure forever, but God's kingdom will endure forever. The third scene in closing is the scene of visiting the temple. Verse 11 says he goes into the city as he entered Jerusalem. The first place he goes to is the temple. At first glance, verse 11 seems anticlimactic. Jesus looks around in the temple. He returns to Bethany for the evening because it was late. What's the point of this detail? The point is this. Jesus goes into the temple. The temple represented God's presence among his people. And they were to be a light to the nations. This was a centerpiece of Jewish faith, of their religion. But it had become a den of robbers and thieves. They were swindling people. They were hindering people from actually worshiping God. They were doing anything they could to make a quick buck. And so the next day, Jesus Jesus enters the temple and he begins to do what? Turn over the tables. And the point is this, God no longer dwells in the temple, but in people. In fact, God in flesh, Jesus comes to visit his temple and sees all the distortion that has happened within the temple. He sees how they have now hindered God's people from worshiping him and not helped God's people in worshiping him. Hear me out, church. we, We need to see this. God's presence now dwells in his people. God's presence dwells in His church. The church is to be the light to the nations. He has called us to proclaim His gospel of peace to all nations. You see, it's incumbent upon the church to live out God's mission in the world. This means by holy living we affect change in our culture. This means, as a church, we Cry out to God on behalf of our neighbors, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our local, state, and national government. It means we participate in the political process as citizens of this country, all the while ministering to the poor and the underprivileged, the orphans and the widows. It means that we seek justice for the disadvantaged of society. It means, church, that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. As our humble king paved the way of peace with God, we are to take this message of peace and we are to proclaim it to the world. And we are to do this as we await the triumphant return of Christ at the last day. Church, let us faithfully proclaim peace with God as ambassadors for Christ. I want to challenge you this week as we live out our faith, as we consider this Passion Week and What Christ has done is he's turned his eyes now toward the cross. I want to challenge you and encourage you to spend time praying, seeking to understand Scripture, seeking to make your heart transparent before the Lord and asking God to speak into your life and to challenge you as his servant on how you are to faithfully proclaim peace with God as an ambassador for Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, who has made a way for us to have peace with you. We thank you that he endured suffering, that we might have eternal life. 
We thank you, Father, for the way that we see him turning his face toward Jerusalem and embracing the mission that you called him to. Your word says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God, teach us about humble living. God, teach us about proclaiming this message of peace to all nations, to the people that you've placed in our lives for your glory and for their good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?